Welcome to the very first episode of The Social Exchange. I am your host, Mary Blackburn. Since this is our pilot episode, I'd like to introduce myself and the podcast. I am a sociology student. For those of you that have never learned about sociology, if you've never taken a class or even read up on it, it's pretty straightforward. Sociology is the study of the development, structures, and major functioning of humans in society. For those of you that are interested in psychology, think of psychology as the study of how individuals work on a micro level, while sociology studies how people and societies work on a macro scale. I became interested in sociology upon taking my first intro to sociology my freshman semester. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do at this point, but that class really stuck with me. It was so refreshing to find a subject that talked about major social issues through past histories and current events and studies, allowing for a better understanding of the ceaseless ways that humans and cultures diverge and unite. Since finally declaring my major as a sociologist, I haven't regretted it. Saying all this, I would like to clarify my goals for this podcast. I am still brand new to this field, and I thought it would be a cool idea to start a podcast to not only help myself learn, but also help people who are passionate about issues taken from a sociological perspective. What's exciting about this is that sociology covers nearly every major subject, cultural perspectives, criminology, deviance, sexuality, gender, race, politics, mental health, and social, social perspectives regarding sex, age, labeling, and so much more. So anytime you're listening to NPR or your local newscasting, a lot of the subjects and statistics they bring up are actually discussing sociology. So if that's something you're interested in, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Either way, thank you so much for tuning in. And for today's first episode, I was honored to sit down with Julia Powers, who works in hospice care, and Professor Lois Hickman, who is a professor of mine at Texas State University. We sat down and discussed the subject of death and dying and the hospice care system in America. Now I'm going to break down some quick numbers and facts pertaining to today's subject. Fact one. The average life expectancy is currently 74 years for men and 79 years for women. Two, prior to the 1940s, funerals took place at home and were held in a parlor room. Because of this, the very first funeral home was called the funeral parlor. And just for a fun piece of irony, parlors are now called living rooms. Now, number three on our fun fact list is 58.7% of hospice care patients are female while 41.3% are male. This is because women usually live longer than men, while men suffer shorter deaths than women, such as strokes and heart attacks. Also, there is a major relationship between wealth and survival outcomes in America. And finally, women are less likely to be given an obituary in the newspapers compared to men over the past century. The hit podcast, Stuff Mom Never Told You, covered a whole episode called Gender Disparity from Beyond the Grave that details the ways in which this issue persists and tries to illustrate how far back it goes. I would strongly recommend going back and listening to it. With that, I think now would be a good time to dive into the interview and let the rest of the episode speak for itself. And thank you so much for listening to The Social Exchange. All right. 
All right, well, I am sitting um, with Professor Lois Hickman and the Manager of Volunteer Services at the Kindred Hospice Care in San Marcos, Julia Powers. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Um, would you all like to tell us a little bit about yourselves? Professor Hickman, would you like to go first? Sure. I have taught at Texas State for 20 years and been teaching the Family Problems course, which you're in, Mary, mm -hmm. for uh, about uh, 15 years. And um, it's such an important part of sociology to look at the family because it's one of our major social institutions. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've done a lot of research on death, which is our topic today, and families. Hi, I'm Julia. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. Um, I work for Kindred Hospice. I oversee the volunteer program, and I've been with the company a little over three years. Hospice takes care of terminal patients, um, those who have a diagnosis of six months or less. We come in at a critical time, and we support the patients and their families. And I can't think of a job that I would rather do. That's so wonderful. Um, well, one of the reasons why I wanted to sit down and talk to y'all today is um, just for our listeners to know a little bit of the background. As Professor Hickman said, I am in her family problems class, and both of y'all did a presentation on hospice care in America and uh, death and dying. And as someone who has experienced death, um, as many people have eventually, I've noticed that it's a very limited conversation. A lot of the time, whenever you bring up death, uh, it's very short and someone will just say, oh, I'm sorry, and you say thank you, and then it's over, even with people you're close with. And um, I think that's also a huge thing in American culture. And so one of the things that I kind of want to talk about is what are some of the overarching responses to death from an American perspective that y'all have noticed about that conversation? And maybe, if have y'all noticed that it's limited as well? What are some of the things y'all yeah. have to say yes. about that? Certainly, certainly, Mary. Uh, what I've noticed is over the years, I've been to several funerals. My mother was a funeral fan. She loved to go to funerals. So <laughs> I went, whenever she'd called, guess who died today? Funeral. But um, what I've noticed over the years is my friends and family have aged. It's like when someone dies, you say, oh, how old were they? Or what happened? Or when's the funeral? And so we don't really talk about uh, any of the grieving processes or how are you doing with this issue of dying. We just, in America, we just want to get them cremated or in the ground as soon as possible and not have them linger around on earth when their body's dead. Yeah, we kind of stick to the facts, don't we? We do. Yeah, kind of like uh, reading the obit, you know, yeah. they were born here, they lived this long, they died of such and such, and this is who they left behind. Right, and that's such a good thing to bring up because that really does encompass how shallow of a conversation it is. There's like reading, you know, three lines that just summarizes a life, yeah. which is understandable why we have to do that, but um, there's so much more to it yeah. than that. It's so a poor representation. Emotion. Yeah. One of the things that I'm curious about is do y'all think um, that religion has a play in how we talk about it? I know that there seems to be a decline in religion in a, um, modern times. Do you think that that has any play in how we talk about death? Do you think that um, when there is more religion that we are more okay with talking about it? Or does that not have anything to do with it? Well, I am a religious person. Mm -hmm. And so what I notice when, when friends do not identify with a religion, they still look for a church or a pastor or some sort of religious connection uh, to, the, to the person who is deceased. And uh, I, th I find that interesting. Um, 
What else, Julia? Help me out. I I tell you what, because we deal with people of all walks of life, all ages, and all different religions. Um, I haven't myself noticed that there's a difference. Um, I don't think talking about death is tied so much to your religious beliefs as it is what life beliefs you've had. Mm -hmm. Um, People who are closed off and withdrawn are going to have a harder time talking about it because that's their nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, Families who don't talk about other issues, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, are going to have a harder time talking about death because their nature is to just put a Band-Aid on it. Right, or or phrases like, well, you know, granddad's in heaven with our dog. And what does that mean? If you're not a religious person, what does heaven mean? Why is the dog there? And it just brings up all sorts of questions. Yeah, whereas we could have more of a discussion. That's, um, I think it's interesting when you, from the very little ex- um, exposure I've had to um, cultures all around the world, even through film or books, it's a lot more of like, oh, this life is continuing on, whether that's through the people that remember them, um, with films like Coco that just came out, mm-hmm. um, or in um, Asian cultures, is also continuing on of that life. I don't, I haven't seen a lot of that um, as much in American culture. It does exist, and I'm not saying that it doesn't. But what are some ways that you think that that's like a healthier way from what y'all have viewed when you are helping people grieve? Well, I think personally speaking, um, we celebrate birth, we throw parties, showers, we give gifts, and then we don't want to talk about death. And it's every bit as important and it's as a part of life. None of us are getting out of this alive. So why not discuss it? And I just, I think it'd be wonderful if we could get to a point where we celebrated the end of someone's life like we celebrated the beginning. Like in Coco. (laughs) Coco is a great example of Day of the Dead and other cultures who celebrate the yearly anniversary of someone's death and honor them in different ways or lay their bodies out like in in the catacombs in Italy. You know, you'll see dead people laid out there. And in America, for Americans, that's like creepy. It is. You're right. We can't can't get them in the ground fast enough. We want them cremated or in the ground. We don't want to see them really, unless we see a cute little film or picture Mm -hmm. of them. But, uh, and then after the funeral is some of the most important part, I think, of American Mm -hmm. society because (laughs) the family gathers around the, um, their loved one who's died and then comes a sticky part of who's getting the china and who's getting the tv and how are we going to divide this up and uh and so you can really see a lot of family problems and family conflict arrive when the funeral's over and people really have to talk about what do we do with all this stuff that we uh materialistic americans feel like we have to have Mm. also um the process of grieving and healing it really doesn't even start to kick in until probably about three weeks, two to three weeks after the loved one is passed. Because up to that point, a lot of people are really just in shock. They're going through mm-hmm. the actions. They're doing what they're supposed to do. People are guiding them and helping them, you know, be it a funeral or a service, yada, yada. It's after that. What comes right. after that yeah. when it starts to sink in? Gosh, that person's really gone, and here I am by myself, and now people aren't bringing food to the house anymore, right. and the cards right. have stopped coming, and the calls have stopped coming in. Yeah. Well, that's what, what I do is I usually wait about 
I, I never knew three week was the magic number, but I usually wait to make a phone call or send a card uh, afterwards, uh, just because I know that that person uh, is probably lonely if they were really bonded to their to their uh, mate that's deceased now. Yeah. I had an interesting conversation. I love to give examples. I had a really great conversation with a good friend of mine's uh, mother. Her father had passed away. They knew he was going to die. He was on hospice. But still, even know it was knowing it was coming and being able to plan and prepare for it, um, I went to the funeral. And then I sent a gift to uh, my friend's mother about three weeks later. And when she got it, she, she called me and she said, were you there? And I said, yeah. She said, I don't remember you. Mm-hmm. She didn't remember anything. Mm-hmm. Wow. And she didn't remember the photos. I, I'd taken some photos and framed them and sent them to her. And uh, she didn't remember any of it. The whole day mm-hmm. was just gone for her. And I thought, that's shock right there. Yeah. So. Yeah, and um, one of the things that y'all talked about when y'all came and lectured, um, everyone's familiar with the five stages of grief, Um, but from what we've just been talking about, that's um, a very huge misrepresentation of how we handle grief. It doesn't, there's things that we express that are outside of those five stages. Mm -hmm. There's not an order to them. Um, And that's something that really stood out from when y'all came and talked to us about that. And I think that's a lot of what y'all are kind of saying now is we had this perspective that there's a certain way that you're going to handle this and you need to go through the motions. But we don't talk about the, Sadly, the there's the there's no map. No. <laughs> there's no. no instructions to follow. Right. Like, that doesn't work that way. Yeah, and that's probably one of the reasons why we have such a hard time talking about it. We're so scared of it. Right, and, and at my mother's funeral, I laughed. And people might have found that inappropriate, but it was totally appropriate in the context it was within. It worked for you. And it worked for me. And, and when I made the joke about her, everybody laughed because we remembered her that way. Yeah, and that's, that's I think... Good. That's something that um, I would like to see more of. Yeah. And that sounds strange mm-hmm. if you say that to people. They're going to be <laughs> right. like, oh, my God, you're so heartless. Right. Um, and so, you know, with that, I think a lot of the time when we are getting close to people passing away and um, they decide that they do need to take advantage of hospice care um, or any type of acceptance of that of that that of their death, um, there's a lot of things we don't talk about that. So. For both of y'all, what are some misconceptions about hospice care and also just kind of families accepting death, dealing with death, but along that line? I have, I have a really good example that uh, a dear friend of mine, his wife is dying, and he is going to be 65, so she's probably mm, 55. She has cancer, and she uh, overcame it once. Now she's going through different treatment. It's not working. He said... She probably won't live until his birthday, his 65th birthday, which is coming up in about six months. And so I said, well, what about hospice? And he said, we're not there yet. Mm. So I don't know if he's thinking hospice is a place where we know hospice is a service. It can be a place, but larger than that, hospice is a service. And I think hospice scares him. It does. So he he doesn't. It's terrifying. It's like giving up. Yes, and he doesn't know all the, and I've been through hospice with my mother and my mother-in-law, and what a great experience it was to have someone understand me and treat my mother and my mother-in-law with such love at the end of life. Yeah, yeah. Um, The biggest misconception that we find with hospice care is that um, some people really think that 
Okay. It's giving up. We're completely giving up on this person and hospice is going to come in and they think in some way, like we're, we're going to end their life that we're going to, you know, like we're all a bunch of Kevorkians or something. I don't know. Yes, we do. Yeah, we do. Actually, (laughs) they're in my trunk. The craziest thing was when I walked in, y'all did. And I was like, you know, I didn't know this was going to be how this is going to come. Yeah. (laughs) Bunch of grim reapers running around. So there are so many wonderful things that hospice can bring. Um, to a family and and I say a family because we don't just treat the patient correct really are there to support the family we're there for the patient until the patient passes but then what you still have the family and and their grieving is just starting Mm -hmm. so um, hospice comes in with a team we're not just doctors and nurses they're CNAs they're chaplains to support the patient and the family during this process and social social workers workers. big one yes what do we how do we pay for this bill what oh do we my do? gosh What's, in so many to... ways social workers yep. help plan and prepare if there a live uh is the living will in order right have you made a decision if you, the patient's going to um, need a dnr do they want that lots of things that you don't think about so the sooner we can get involved the more things we can offer the more services we can provide and it really helps ease that transition you bet. You bet. Um, the longer you wait you know, we can still come in and help, but we're just going to have that less time with you yeah. to to make the transition. And um, it really is important. Right. So along that line, one of the biggest misconceptions is that y'all are kind of um, the the end point in, like, in a really bad way. We keep on saying like, oh, I've given up. Like that's what this means. Yeah. Whereas if they allowed people in hospice to help sooner, then that celebration of the end of life that y'all have to offer could be greater. And that's something that they can miss out on by their own fears of, of that. Yeah. And the, uh, the six months diagnosis that's needed, uh, of course, can change and they can go on and off hospice. hospice. I talk yep. like I work here, but I do know hospice. Yeah, you well do. You do. 15 years of lecturings, lectures. Uh, but the, back to the family, you know, the biggest part is the person dying, and I'm guessing this, Julia, probably is ready to die. And it's the family that's not ready to let go. Yeah. Sometimes, absolutely. Um, it, it is a choice. Hospice is offered to anyone who is appropriate and qualifies for the service. Uh, sometimes the patients aren't ready, so they you know, continue to treat the disease or fight the disease as the case may be. Um, Other times the patient is absolutely ready, but they have a loved one that's holding out. It could be a spouse or it could be a sibling, uh, children, you know, and it's so important that that patient have the full support of the people around them in making this journey. It just eases it. It's night and day. I don't know how else to describe it. Can you imagine uh, facing the end of life and not having the full support of your loved ones you know yeah and as they say about funerals they're for the living they're not for the dead that's exactly right that's right um i kind of laugh at the people who buy the most expensive caskets and right you know (laughs) spend a fortune on the prettiest flowers for somebody who's not there anymore right you know yeah um now what are some of the differences between medical care and hospice and um, some of the history of how hospice came to work in America. 
Okay, well, you've got hospitals who treat diseases. Um, you go to the hospital after you've had an accident. You go to the hospital when you're sick. The goal is to get you better and send you home. So what happens when they realize you're not gonna get better? You see? Um, there's only so much they can do. Um, hospice provides palliative care, comfort care. Uh, we're going to treat your symptoms to make sure you're comfortable, but we're also going to handle all of these other things that we touched on earlier. Right. Uh, providing CNA services, bringing supplies, equipment, and medication into your home. And that's wherever the patient calls home. Home for them is where we go to. Um, we have volunteers who come in and provide companionship and socialization visits. They offer caregiver relief so that the caregivers can get a small respite and take a break, get out of the house, go to the bank, go to the grocery store. Chaplains can come in, and they're non-denominational. They're not coming in with an agenda. They're going to be there to support the patient on any level, whatever is comfortable for them. And then our wonderful social workers who do so much. Um, yeah. I should make a list, honestly, because it's almost this, too much to say. <laughs> on that note, with social workers and sociologists um, alike, what what do you think they have to bring to the table in conversations like this? Well, you know, I was a social worker for 25 years be before I became a sociologist, and I think what we can what we tend to do is talk about what's going on and plan for the future. And we don't plan, but we we ask the family, "What are your plans?" Uh, for the future of this person who who's, has six months or less to live, uh, how are you going to um, support yourself afterwards would be a big question sociologically. Uh, with the boomers aging out and dying, I've had three friends die this year, three at the end of last year. You know, what happens when you can't afford the things you once did because you've lost an income? And I mean, that sounds cold, but it's a reality is you're going to lose an income yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. if that person's a wage earner or mm -hmm. has a benefit mm -hmm. right so it's it's important to talk about the facts and not ignore it and fight over it but try to solve things and i think that's a big thing for hospice is they helped with my mother and my mother-in-law talk about um what happens afterwards you know yeah it's the difficult conversation it is very and it helps you see past um, it's kind of like we're seeing just up to them dying, like we're trying to prepare for this one moment, but then what? Then what, right. And the more you know, the more knowledge you have, the more comfortable you are going to be, because you, know you know what's coming, that's scary. Mm -hmm. The not knowing, that's scary. Well, and then that's where hospice has helped me, because I know when my husband's grandmother was dying, we made several trips to El Campo, and we'd come back, and you know, she's still alive, and so... <laughs> Uh, one of the aunts called and said, Lois, she's going to die soon. And I said, how do you know? And Aunt Jerry said, her hands are getting really cold and her feet are getting cold. Mm -hmm. And so through that experience, I realized that the body goes through some transitions. Mm -hmm. As it's shutting down, you're going to stop eating, mm -hmm. maybe stop talking, hard labored breathing, and your body gets cold and perhaps a little blue tint to it. So there are signs Camping. when someone's going to die. Typically. Typically, yes. when they're dying a slow Typically death. Typically speaking, yeah, there are definite mm -hmm. signs. You know it's coming, which is nice. It's nice for the family to know. It's, that's about the only time you really know is when you see these signs. And you don't always, like you said, you don't always see them. 
But uh, I think it's comforting. And whenever I mentioned stuff like that to my children when they were young, they went, Mom, that's so, that's so morbid. That's so, just so gross. You yeah, know, why are you talking talk about, about that? that. <laughs> yeah. I think I've completely desensitized my children almost to the like, far side now because I can talk to them about anything and they're like, mm, okay. <laughs> that's a good place to be, though, because then, yeah. you know, then they have that perspective to help other people in their so. time of need. And so you're carrying that on. You did, um, you touched earlier and you asked about the history of hospice. Mm -hmm. Um, The very first hospice started in England. And in um, 1974, the first hospice was built here in the United States. It was started by a group of volunteers and it was um, completely privately, it was private pay. Mm -hmm. Um, So you could go there if you could afford to go there. It was uh, paid for by your insurance, but there was absolutely no funding Uh, through the government. Uh, Twice hospice, the volunteers of hospice approached uh, Congress to try and get that paid and they weren't able to do so. And then something happened in the very early 1980s which changed changed medicine forever and that was the HIV outbreak. And hospitals found themselves overwhelmed with very sick people who were not um, getting better quite honestly. Uh, antibiotics weren't working. They didn't know what caused it. They were scared. Um, it was terrifying. They were scared of those I remember it patients. vividly. Yeah. So aging myself here. But yeah, I remember all these, there were all these myths that you could get it from kissing or sitting on a toilet seat and crazy stuff. And you had doctors and nurses refusing to go to work. Women who didn't want to go to the hospital to have babies because they didn't want to catch it. Yeah. And what do you do? And so, um, it was by the pushing of the gay activists mm-hmm. and uh, these volunteers. And 1982, hospice said, we will take your sick and your dying. and We will take care of them, but you're going to have to fund us. And Congress said, okay. And we got our Medicare funding. And so out of something very tragic and um, sad came something really good. Yeah, and also that um, lets people know, I think there's a... I don't. I think people know this, but they don't think about it very much. That hospice can be for any age. Oh, it's not absolutely. just there. There are hospices mm-hmm. for children, yeah. if you can imagine that. Which is heartbreaking, but also it very is. important. It is absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And with the with the population, us us boomers, I say, uh, aging and, and dying. I don't think the benefit's going to go away, but I think the awareness needs needs to be raised so it's not such a morbid gross scary concept that people realize because i can say that personally it's a very comforting process to know that a specialist is with you while your loved one's dying yeah and that it's okay to talk about it yeah well i think so going forward um just with our society in the future what are some things you'd like to see change from the perspective of how we handle death and talk about it well personally like i said um I wish we celebrated death like we celebrate a child coming into the world. I really wish every one of us could go out with a party. Right. I think that'd be phenomenal. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. sit around and share memories and look at photos. Um, yeah, there'll be some tears, but that's okay. You know, right. it's bittersweet, but that's at least we need that we need the sweet. Yeah. And and all the options that are coming out. You know. Uh, like you guys know from my class I teach, uh, my mother-in-law was cremated, and she's been all over the world. <laughs> we put her ashes all over the place, and it's fun. Here, Grand, you And, you want... know, that's healing for you and your family. You bet. You know? 
Yeah, so making it your own. There's not a guideline for these things. Honor that specific life and that specific family. Yeah, so was that person a cookie cutter of another gram? No. no she no. was unique <laughs> and wonderful in her own way, and you're celebrating her life, and that's good for everybody. And then the website that, it, that you show in my class, Julia, oh. is great. It <laughs> says all the different ways that the ashes uh, can be worked into pieces of art or oh, jewelry. Yeah. All these amazing things people Tattoos. are doing. Tattoos. Yep. Yeah. Tattoo <laughs> ink. They'll um, always be jewelry. under your skin. <laughs> You get tattooed. That's what one student said. Personally, I'm kind of pushing to be a part of a coral reef. But you could be shot into space, or you can be fired into the air in a firework. I mean, all kinds of wonderful things. There's a lot of options. Well, as we wrap up, I know this question is a little bit similar, but if you could leave people with one last thought on this topic, what would it be? I'll let you go. Ooh, that's a tough question because... It's easy for us to talk about it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it used to it's not be easy do. until I taught family problems right. and had my first hospice speaker. Mm-hmm. And I just thought she'd be all over Kevorkian. And she said, no, I want to die mm-hmm. naturally. I don't want to die. Uh, and, and thank it's you interesting. For, I'm glad you said that because I, I want to say hospice neither hasten, hastens death nor do we postpone it. Mm-hmm. We actually mm-hmm. allow the disease to run its course and let the person die naturally, mm-hmm. but without pain. Right. And yeah. over the years I've taught this, we've always done a survey, and every year it seems like more and more students in the class know about hospice. Which is good. I, which is great, but I just wish everybody would have that opportunity. Everyone has that opportunity. I wish they'd take advantage of it because it really is a supportive uh, way to be with your loved one at the end of it their is. life. I'm hoping that maybe medical schools will get to the point and they actually teach. Maybe there'll be a course for doctors to have that conversation because that's a very difficult conversation to have with a family when you've been fighting an illness right. and you've been trying to treat the disease and they realize it's not going to get better. Mm-hmm. And if they could bring up hospice sooner, think of the difference it would make in the whole Correct. family for the whole family and and students are not trained i called my girlfriend erin uh, mm-hmm. ann yep. shout out to erin ann young mm-hmm. very young doctor in and got her uh, training in florida and she said you could choose if you were going to work with um geriatrics you could choose that course but if not you were just given straight medical training which teaches mm. doctors to fix and unfortunately it isn't just the geriatric group that's dying <laughs> right <laughs> i mean in a perfect world maybe but yes. no right and, uh, trying to have more classes in the medical field that teach the emotional and mental side as well as the physical problem correct absolutely yeah. um i know we're at the end of our meeting but i have one last thing and yes. I, I have a question for you All right. so in my opinion hospice is the ultimate gift you can give anyone so um, let me ask you, if you found out that you were dying, you had a terminal illness, and you had six months or less to live, what would you want for yourself? What, it, what would be most important to you? Oh, that's such an interesting question that I don't think about a ton. Um, I think I would you know, kind of want to have the experiences that you kind of weighed out on. I know that's such a cheesy response because that's what everyone's like, no, I'm going to do. You'd have a bucket list? Yeah. Okay, Um, okay. But I think... In the very end, in your final days, what would that look like for you? Where would you be? You could move in with Julia. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Julia will take care of you. Oh, yeah, I think like having... (laughs) 
having you know the way like what hospice provides of not being in as much pain I think would be very important to get to a point right knock that knock knock the pain off the list and what and be home you know with like and comfort with your loved ones surrounded by the people you love and the people that love you and the things that you know and that is the gift of hospice that's what we do and I also learned from hospice that everyone needs a living will. I don't care how old you are. Oh my gosh, yes. Get it now. Get it now. 21 years old, 18 years old, go get one. They're free. They're free. They're free. (laughs) They're free. We hand them out. I'll put one in your hand. You don't need an attorney to complete one. You need two witnesses. It is that easy. Yep. Living will. Everybody that's listening. Have a will. Have a will. Living will. It's free. Professor Hickman, what what is your last antidote with this? Ooh, good question. Well, I think I'd like to be like the Native American and you can just shove, put me in a canoe when I'm dying and shove me downstream. Just like your husband. Just like I do to my husband. <laughs> Don't let me get caught on a rock. <laughs> I'd like to go out in a unique way if would I was you, dying. Would you like us to light you on fire? No. Oh, okay. No, I don't. Just down I would like to be cremated. I think I'm, I'm going to be cremated yeah, I'd like and to be cremated and water should be involved you bet, ahead, you know you bet. maybe a canoe or maybe space I do love I do love space well I'll I back to my mother you know she went to all the funerals and when I my husband and we even have funeral plots that are worth a ton of money that she gave the kids sell them I'm selling them they're <laughs> prime real estate waste of and space. when I told her that my husband and I were going to be cremated this was her response oh don't talk like that <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> she was, she was, she'd be 101 if she was alive today so yes that but, a new thing. but that yes that kind of was just not what you do but it yeah. is what I think more and more Americans are doing is getting cremated it just makes sense yeah I'd be okay with being dumped in a flower bed and yeah. being a part of a tree or I don't know coral reef really does appeal pets. to me she cremates them and she puts them in the garden there right. you go they're all there. ashes <laughs> to ashes dust to dust that's yes. right well I think that's a great note to uh end the podcast on and I want to thank y'all again for this opportunity and this great conversation thank you it was fun thank Uh you thank you guys